The year is 2014. And I'm sorry, Amy, was it 2014? I, I remember it being 2015. It's 2014. I need you to admit that it's 2014. No, no, I, I'm pretty sure it's 2015. I, I'm, I, I just, I think, I, I think it's 2015. We need to have the same version of this. We can't have different versions of this. Okay. Okay. 2014. Okay. The film, Force Majeure. everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we're endeavoring to find the 100 greatest films ever made. And when we do, we are going to send them into space. Right now, we are in a series that we are simply calling Cold. Uh, these are films that, uh, that have snow. People are cold in them. But primarily, uh, we are seeing a lot of attitudes come out because of bad weather. I, I think that that's one real thing that we're seeing across all these films. People go a little nuts when it gets cold out. People do go a little nuts when it gets cold out. I mean, did you know that I used to study abroad in Sweden where like they had us, you know, go into little locked rooms and get light screened into our faces so that we wouldn't go crazy there? And that my fellow study abroad students, one of them was like, sometimes I walk home and I just want to jump in front of a bus. People go crazy. The cold is a cold place. Oh, man. Well, I'm very excited because I'm going to the cold. Uh, I'm going to a place in Colorado in about two weeks. And I have a jacket now that has heaters on the inside. So basically, I plug in my jacket at night. And then during the day, I stay nice and toasty warm because I realized I can't take the cold anymore. I used to be a New Yorker who could deal with anything. And now I am complete wimp. It breaks me down. When I was in Montreal on long shot, um, it was atrocious. I was incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable at all times. Wow. That jacket sounds like something out of Dune. That jacket sounds like it should recycle the hot chocolate in your body. Ooh, I love that. Um, You know, Amy, we had a question a few weeks ago about who is your favorite Wes Anderson character. And the answers were actually really interesting. Number one, the thing that I found incredibly surprising was the love for Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise Kingdom. People really put those movies way ahead. And I know that we often talk down to Moonrise Kingdom. I have to watch it again because I remember liking it just fine. I remember it as being like the Bruce Willis, Wes Anderson movie, but I don't remember much more about it that I think, you know, you have uh, Ed Norton in short shorts, but I don't, I can't tell you much of the plot. Um, they kill a I, dog. There's a camp. Yes. There's really, it's really, to me, it's just, it is like what people think of when they think of like the Wes Anderson twee little bits of nothing. But there's maybe like a, a knapsack with I, little I, things yeah. in it. Yeah. <laughs> I never wanted to see it again, to, to be honest. Um, yeah, maybe that's I'm the way I felt. But the love for that movie surprised me, although it does dovetail with my theory that that is the one that you see most often at Halloween. I do okay. feel like you see though that couple at Halloween all the time, which well, is to me like the rubric of what's happening in a movie. But I will say this, when people talked about their favorite character, there was a lot a lot of love for Royal Tenenbaum. Like, mm-hmm. and that was something that I've never really considered. And I love Gene Hackman in that movie. And in talking about it with people online, I was like, oh, right, that is maybe 
another like that is close to me uh, with Gustav as being I, I think that Gustav is the quintessential Wes Anderson character. But I also think that Royal is kind of an iconic Wes Anderson character. I will agree with that. And yet I will still say that I think Bill Murray as Zizu is like the visually most representative Wes Anderson character. I feel like that's the one that you can see like a, a, a pencil sketch and you know exactly what's happening. I don't think anybody else can be captured in a pencil sketch. If Zizu was better, I think that Bill Murray would be the ultimate Wes Anderson character. And I actually have grown to like Zizu more. Um but I think it just came after it was it's weird. Wes Anderson's movies really they're hard because you go in kind of wanting one thing. And if it's just a little bit off or at least that's the way I feel, I have to adjust to it a little bit. I don't know. I, I can't quite pin it down. Whereas like a Coen Brothers movie, I always get something different than I expect. And then on a second watch, I really, really love it. Um, but like sometimes an Anderson movie can kind of push me in a corner like nah, that wasn't what I that wasn't like that wasn't what I wanted. It's weird to say this, but I do think like all of our modern auteurs are all people whose films I need to see twice. You know, mm -hmm. I would say Wes is in that group. I would say the Coens are in that group. Tarantino was in that group. Yeah, I would say that Paul Thomas Anderson is in the group because there's just so much hype around seeing their film that you can't relax. You just can't relax because you're so excited and you're like hoping for something very particular that you haven't even articulated to yourself. Yeah, well, I think you are looking for that feeling that you had in their last film that you saw and they make movies that are so completely different that it does take a moment to kind of get in and then get reacquainted and then find the characters. Not to say that they aren't good on the first watch, but to me, like true grit was a movie that I was like, this is fine. And then it went to a movie like, Oh, I love this movie. This is like a great Coen brothers movie. Uh, and I think that that's how I feel about a lot of those films. Like it's like, Oh yeah, yeah, it's good. But then you realize just how good it is because it is so chock full of things. Like, I mean, every one of uh, P.T. Anderson's movies are just full. like they're too rich. You can't take it all in in one sitting, I think. No, it's true. This is a roundabout way of us saying I'm pretty annoyed that French Dispatch was like totally shut out of everything Oscars. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's a lot of weird. I mean, this idea of like snubs. I mean, it's a weird year because there's so much. I think good stuff. I'm excited for things like Mitchell's versus the machines, which is a great animated movie. Um, that is not a Disney or Pixar film that I think is incredibly funny and beautifully done. Um, you know, I'm excited that got nominated. I was hoping in a way that Spider-Man would be the movie that would get a nomination for best picture, just because I think in a weird way, that movie represented something even more all encompassing than what the end game uh, movies at the end of the Civil War uh, Avenger movies represented. Like, I think that was like, we did it. But that, you know, uh, that Spider-Man movie, to me, felt like on par with Return of the King, which was nominated for uh, a Best Picture Oscar. Yeah, um, I feel like you can't ignore that movie for a screenplay, honestly. I thought it was like really, really, really cleverly done. Really well yeah. put together. And, I mean, by the way, Best Supporting Actors, I think you could get... I think it could be, um, you know, put some arguments in there, you know, like I, I think it could say that, like, I really love Tobey Maguire. I thought Andrew Garfield had a really great uh, little arc there. But re regardless, I know that those are not the movies that people give awards to. I will also say. Um, oh, but they should. Oh, 
I know. <laughs> should, because like, honestly, not, it's not even so much that I'm like pro the Spider-Man movie, but like the Spider-Man movie is so much better than Nightmare Alley, which for some reason looks like the kind of movie we give Oscars to. And that movie got so many nominations for being terrible. That movie is like a travesty. Yeah, and I just want to like I know rip likes it that out movie. of everything. It's awful. And if you've ever seen the original, then you can see how terrible this one is. And they nominate it in stuff like cinematography even. Like, no way. Like, give that nomination to Last Night in Soho. I, I, I'm yeah, so I angry. Agree. That like I, that to me, that just feels like default thinking. Like, Wh- I don't know. We gave him weirdly Oscars for Shape of Water. I guess he's an Oscar director. I guess we have to keep doing this. Like, why are we doing this? Well, I just feel like it's when you don't hear anyone talking about a movie, it is the biggest, like it's the biggest, I don't know, thing you can say about an award movie when I haven't heard anyone say anything except for articles that say that Bradley Cooper was very good in it. Like that's the only thing that I know about Nightmare Alley. Um, and I haven't seen it. Um, oh, just oh, just watch the original because you're going to die. It's so okay. amazing. And also now I'm getting heated. I'm like, there's no Green Knight. There's no Green Knight anywhere. I am no- furious about that. I mean, you talk about cinematography, you talk about like direction, yeah. acting across Adapted the board. Yes. Everything. Everything. I'm, and of course, I'm sad for like Simon Rex not getting nominated for Red Rocket. That was like really a good shot for him. But to me, like one of the biggest snubs is Passing. I don't know if you saw Passing yet. Um, oh, yes. I heard about it. It's Rebecca Hall's first film. She worked on the script. It's really well done. It's really well acted. The cinematography is beautiful. Everything about passing is fantastic. And it looks like an Oscar movie in that kind of cliche way that I wish we could break out of. I am stunned that it got nothing. Like, that is brutal. Of course, I'm like sad for like Lito and Gaga, but like that was a bit of a long shot. Passing deserves to be there. And like... Nightmare Alley should go like hide in shame that it is oh, there instead. I mean, I'm also a little bit disappointed not to see any Zola representation across the board either. I mean, from adapted screenplay, uh, there are some amazing supporting actors that are great in that film. But also, I mean, the two leads are phenomenal. But to me, I thought there was one thing that we could both probably agree on or maybe not agree on. But the fact that we don't talk about Bruno not nominated for an Academy Award for Best Song Or, and I was shocked at that because it has beaten out Frozen as being the most popular uh, Disney song on the charts or whatever it is. But um, the one that I was really bummed out to was give one song to Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo for Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. I mean, there is great music in there. There is great. Like, there's so much uh, that I felt like they could have had fun with that category. But it was a very, uh, very surprising. I don't know what goes on there. Uplifting, uplifting, uplifting. It's so tedious. I mean, in my critics groups, there was a lot of love for Barb and Star. I think we, yeah, very much. I will say the one other thing that I think is interesting and telling and a little disappointing, but worth talking about all this at the same time, is um, my girl, Kristen Stewart, getting a nomination for Spencer, which deserved. She's great in that movie. She's great in that movie. But what I think is interesting about it is like her performance in Spencer is the kind of performance we've been wanting to see nominated. It's a horror movie performance. It is her doing possession. It is her doing the same kind of stuff that Tony Collette did in Hereditary, that Lupita did in Like Us. You know, people who got robbed for turning in fantastic performances in horror films. This is that same performance. It's just hidden in a period piece about the royal family. And that is what makes the Academy take notice. I'm happy for her, but I do find that a little bit dispiriting like well, just reward yes. the horror film for the horror film i also want to like just agree with our uh, our engineer devin who 
brought to my attention and I'm shocked because I haven't really like dug into the nominations yet, but the Sparks, nothing. I think Annette is one of my, I mean, I knew Annette is not going to be uh, a full on contender, but I love, I love Annette. I thought Annette was awesome. I'll spend plenty of time telling you why at another point, but um, it no is songs. Fun. I agree. I will back you up on Annette. I yeah, think that no songs nominated. I mean, like, like, uh, like, shall we start? Shall we start is a great song. Great. And how great would that to see at the Academy Awards? Like, well, then that would be an amazing performance. They already did it live, like, or, you know, it looks live like that in the movie. And, uh, and then the documentary, which also was a great documentary. And I don't understand the rules of like what is, and, and every now and then it's so hard now because you watch so much shit on Netflix and it's like, well, is that a documentary that can be eligible? I don't know anymore. So, uh, but that documentary that Edgar Wright did was perfect. Well, I'm excited to get more into Oscars with you. We have some ideas of how I want to attack this year's Oscar season. Yes. People have been asking us to do like a year end roundup. And I think that uh, part of that will be put in our Oscar episodes. But we make actually have a way to celebrate Oscars right until Oscar season. Uh, after The Shining, we'll let you in on that. But Amy, without any further ado, do you think it's time to unspool it? Is that you being Scandinavian? The year is 2014. Headlines include stories about the Ice Bucket Challenge, The Fappening, The Sony Hack, Bill Cosby, and ISIS. Uh, following the murders of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, protests against police brutality turned violent in Ferguson, Missouri. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 vanishes somewhere in the Indian Ocean. And this year's popular films are The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Babadook, Guardians of the Galaxy, and today's film, Force Majeure. Uh, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Force Majeure. It is written and directed by Ruben Esland, and it is inspired by his time as Ski Bum, by his love of YouTube, and by Esland's desire to provoke the audience and make them think, how do I feel about what is happening on screen? Um, Force Majeure is a legal term. That's where the title comes from. And it means in, in legalese that both parties are freed from liability in the event of an extraordinary event or circumstance that happens to keeps them from fulfilling their contract to each other. Here in this film, the contract is marriage because we've got this rich Swedish couple. Their names are Thomas and Ebba. They're played by Johannes Bakunke and Lisa Lovenkongsli. They're on a ski vacation in the Alps with their kids. Very hoity-toity, very fancy. When the whole family thinks they're about to die in an avalanche while they're eating lunch, Tomas runs for cover and he leaves his entire family behind. But he does remember his cell phone. Uh, Force Majeure is a movie about masculinity, about gender stereotypes, about the survival instinct of humans. And it was a very big deal in 2014. It premiered in the Cannes Uncertain Regard section. That's a section we really love here on the show. It's the section that Dogtooth was in. And it was considered a strong uh, front runner for the American Foreign Language Best Picture, although it did not get nominated. Oh, academies are always wrong. Force Majeure premiered here in the States on October 24th, 2014. And what was going on in the zeitgeist? Well, the top song on the Billboard charts was another singer who was questioning gender roles and stereotypes. She was saying, why do women got to be like this? Why do people think people have got to be like this? Why do we have all of these ideas about who's lovable? And of course, I am talking about Megan Trainer and All About That Face. I'm all about that face, about that face. Hey. I'm bringing booty back. Go ahead. Perfect from the bottom to the top Yeah, my mama, she told me, don't worry 
All right, classic song. Classic uh, song, classic trainer. (laughs) You know, people have been saying that we haven't done a foreign film in quite some time. And this is an interesting film because I think this is one of those rare foreign films that really made a breakthrough in the States. I heard about Force Majeure so much. And it was so popular that they made uh, the American version of it with Julia Louise-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell uh, just a couple years later. And um, which no one spoke about. And when I went back and looked at reviews, it wasn't really even poorly reviewed. It just seemed like it just didn't connect. And I was wondering, like, at the root, is this movie too real? Because this movie is a very, like, subtle film where there's no, like, real bad guy or good guy. It really is just about, like, like the hidden self that we are or we get caught in a moment that is shown to be incredibly cowardly. I mean, that like the movie really is about cowardice and how that affects, or I think on some level, about how that affects those around you, like when you're caught in this moment. Because obviously the husband runs away from his family. And it's not because he's in a bad relationship. I think the movie does an amazing job at showing that they're in a pretty solid relationship. You know, it, it seems normal, right? Like if anything... Or at least when I watch it, I'm like, this is so aggressively my life that there's nothing nothing wrong. It seems like the husband and wife love each other. Yes, they're tired. They get the kids. The kids are annoying sometimes, but they're getting through their day. They're having a vacation. It doesn't seem like they're at each other's throat. But this one moment kind of expands a crack, you know, maybe a small crack in the sidewalk that kind of starts to explode over the course of the film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a film that's really quietly questioning everything that we have in other louder films. You know, like uh, it's questioning for one fundamentally, like this idea of a hero complex, a thing that's like talked about directly in the movie, you know, by like by their buddy, Harry, who shows up this big, like red bearded guy who's like, you know, don't be mad at your husband. Like the enemy that we have is this image we have of heroes, you know, and that the truth is when like reality is staring you in the face and you're afraid to die, very few of us are heroic. And he's saying like, we put all of this pressure on men to be heroes, but also the man himself is kind of lame about it. He's like, he won't admit what he did. He won't tell the truth to his wife. He's making his wife feel kind of crazy because she's like, just please say that you ran away from us. I need you to like acknowledge that this is what happened. And he's like, no, 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 no. And when he tells the story to people, he's like, it wasn't even that bad. It was a controlled avalanche. It was, uh, it was uh, like a contro- controlled avalanche. So it was... Uh, controlled avalanche, yeah, yeah. yeah. But quite quickly it, it grew kind of big. I, I had never seen such a big uh, avalanche. Yeah. And it was like... Uh, for a moment it looked like it would smash into the wow. the restaurant. It was quite uh, shocking. I, I, yeah, wow. when I but talk about okay? it I still get this uh, goosebumps. What'd you do? No, I mean, this was not much to do. It was horrifying. Yeah? Yeah. It scared you? Yeah. Yeah, you... you, you Kids are all right? Yeah, every, everyone is fine. You got a bit afraid, but I mean, it wasn't... I mean, it wasn't that... Uh, it was controlled, and then they are, they yeah, know what they're right. doing. And he got so scared that he ran away from the table. What? No, I did not. No, no, Come on. No, 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 no. I did not. run away from the table. What? No, I did not. And so, yeah, you're right. There's, like, all of these layers kind of going on under the surface. Like, would we run away? Probably. 
Would we lie about it? Probably. Does it make him look really bad on film? Yes, absolutely. It makes him look really bad on film. I think the idea that is so funny about it is also, this is an extreme example of like a perfect couple fight, right? Um, Oftentimes, I think when you are in a, a relationship, you can get into a moment, a spat, whatever you want to say it is, and you both are going to be entrenched in, well, I, I'm right. That's what happened. No, no, this is what happened. And it's this unknowable thing because it's sort of like, well, my perception of it makes me feel like this versus your perception of it. So I think that's how it first starts. Like we, the audience, we see what happens. And because it wasn't done with any malice or anything like that, like we see this like little fight. I just need, just admit it, just admit it, you know, say you're sorry, just get out in front of it. He knows he did something wrong. Like the way that he interacts with her after he comes back to the table, after it was just like this dusting, this awkwardness that just pervades and they're not saying anything. Like they know it's like, well, what am I going to say? Like, am I going to call him a coward? And, and it's in a weird way, what I think is kind of so great about it is they pull out the tape. I feel like a lot of the times, and there's a great black mirror about this too. Like, well, let's go back to the tape. Let's see what actually happened. Like, let's look at the moment. And they're able to watch the moment. He was videotaping the avalanche and you see him run away with the camera and, and everyone's faces watching it and how much worse it was seeing the proof of it. And I think it's this want, like sometimes when you're in a relationship to be like, I just want to like, let me see it. Like, like could, if I could replay it, can I replay that moment? Like, let me, let me do my John Madden, RIP, uh, you know, kind of play by play of the moment. And I think it's like that, that kind of holding in, like it's, it's sort of like, I mean, it's an argument that is based in a real thing that happened. Like there is no two ways about it. He did run away. Why he ran away? That's open to debate, but he did run away. And the fact that he wouldn't admit that he ran away is really interesting. Yeah. It's like he didn't want to admit to her that he ran away, but he also didn't want to admit to himself that he ran away. Like, it feels like he kind of almost believes that maybe he didn't run away. He's like, I don't know. I blacked out. Who really knows what happened? Like, it's like the revelation of seeing who you might really be is so brutal. It's so, so brutal. And, and who you are supposed to be, I think as a man, right? I think that, that, I think that his wife in the film is like, you should have protected us. And not to say that she is looking, not that she's weak or anything like that, but I think that she's looking to him to perform a very stereotypical male act. Like you saved us. You got in front of this. You were, you know, you were the father and the husband in that moment and not just a person. And I think maybe that's this idea of like, how do we look at people that we're in relationships with? Like who do we, who they are, who do we want them to be? And if we always are holding them up to who we want them to be, are we always going to be disappointed? Probably, right? Yeah. I mean, that's awful to say. But I feel like in an episode about a Scandinavian movie, we can say awful things to each other because that's sort of what happens. I, I mean, it's interesting. Like, this is based on a true story for, for Ruben. I mean, he's got a... It's Okay, you remember how like last week I was like, all right, we did our jackass episodes. Let's like do something 180 degrees away. We're going to do force majeure. And then I remembered that I'm totally wrong because like Ruben has a background kind of like the guys from jackass, believe it or not. Like 
Um, he's from Sweden. He's from like the small like island on the south coast of Sweden that's really small, like less than 1,500 people. And when he graduated, um, when he graduated high school, he decided to become like a snowboard videographer. So he like spent several years on the Alps and he did these like really intense ski films, basically films that were kind of like jackass before jackass. He like, he like would set up the camera. He'd do these really long takes and he would just witness really insane stunts that he was all filming in the nineties. I mean, even like one of the openings of his films has an opening that's basically jackass. You almost watch it and feel like maybe Spike Jones saw this and ripped it off. It's all the guys like running and their shirts are off and it gets freeze framed. And then like you see their names, it's Eric Mosfeldt, Jan Olive Eiko. And, and it, and it is that kind of movie. It has got, you have to hear like the music in the background, by the way. It's just like wacky. is where like Ruben came from. I was saying in our Jackass episode, how much I want to see that great class of like directors who came out of shooting like skateboard videos. I guess Ruben's in it. If you say that snowboarding is basically skateboarding for people who have like cooler weather than we do, which yes. (laughs) And like, he has talked about how much his fiction technique when he went on to make like proper fiction films. Like he finally quit snowboarding movies. He went to film school. Um, He studied under a guy who really valued like realistic types of filmmaking. Um, And he was like, okay, well now I have learned like, you know, from snowboarding videos, one thing that was really important to me is that what you put in the film is just like important moments, all the moments that are worth saving. And if you don't create a spectacular moment on film, then it's not even worth putting it in the movie. And so like, that was really important to him. He really learned how his style is to hold a camera still so that like, we can feel like we're watching a documentary of these people and we can see all the action taking place in the frame. Like he keeps the camera here very still. I mean, when the avalanche happens, he doesn't do a single cut. You're just like watching the avalanche from one camera position. Well, not to even, I know I'm kind of probably mixing my film styles, but it feels a little bit like the tatami style that we saw in Tokyo Story because, you know, the camera at certain points is so locked off that you're cutting off people's heads and you're just hearing and you're looking at people's faces. And there's something really interesting about that stillness. I think it's those moments that you want to capture in a documentary where you are just watching people react. And a lot of this movie is just reactions. Even when they show the video of the husband taping the avalanche, I thought, oh, we're going to go into the video now. We're going to see what it looks like from his camera. And you don't. You just watch the reactions of everyone watching it. And in a movie like this, I think it is it is more powerful because this movie isn't about, I'm so mad at you. Like, what can you be mad at? Like, he didn't purposely try to hurt the children. He didn't try to, uh, you know, run away from his wife. He wasn't trying to do anything wrong. He just reacted in this moment. And I think that that was so revealing to him that he couldn't admit it. Like, it wasn't like, I'm unhappy. I did want to leave you. Like, there's nothing there. There's no big moment. So it really is Yeah, this it's not wrestling. like that my subconscious is I'm having an affair. Like, there's nothing, nothing, nothing like that. You're right. What makes this movie really interesting is like, we can all see ourselves as this man, right? Like, I think that there's the idea that we want to be 
the hero, but we can also see ourselves in a moment, maybe running or or you're or getting to safety. I, I you know, because I think about it and I go, let me be as honest as I could possibly be. And my thought would be like, well, no, no, I would definitely make sure that my family was okay. I, I think that. But I think what this movie is trying to show you is, I think that he thought that too. If you asked him this question, he would think the same thing. And what is so interesting about how the movie kind of heightens, because it really is just like this one scene played out over and over again, is when they meet that other couple, that the guy from Game of Thrones with the big orange beard. Um, oh, he's a Game of Thrones guy? He oh, yeah. Like he's a, a, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like a, a beloved Game of Thrones uh, character. Uh, when he leaves with his girlfriend, she's like, well, what would you have done? And then this argument, right? Like, this is like an argument that I feel like was probably an argument that again, starts a crack in their relationship. Their relationship is going fun and fine. They're so, you know, they're so newly in love. And then this question of what would you do? And it's it's these questions that have no answer, right? Um, it's just a hypothetical. And this hypothetical can really fuck you up. Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, well, for Ruben, like this is based on a true story for him. You know, he had a friend, another Swedish couple, and they went on holiday somewhere in South America. He's never said the country. Um, And they were just like having dinner. And suddenly all of these guys with guns showed up and started firing just into the crowd. And the husband ran away and left the wife there. And so they came back and they were like trying to tell him about this. And the wife couldn't stop it. And I feel like he maybe was in that position, too. Like he's he's a married guy with kids. Like, oh, my God, what would I do? What am I doing? And so he's putting the pieces together of this movie, you know, and being like, is it, am I capable of doing this? And there's a disaster that, you know, the red bearded guy refers to in, in this film. You know, he's talking um, about the Estonia, you know, and the Estonia was, of course, in Scandinavia, like very big on people's minds. It was a ship that went from Stockholm to Tallinn, you know, so it goes like across the ocean. It's usually like an overnight ship. I've done it. It's very cold. I had once had to sleep in a ball pit because I was too poor to like afford Whoa. to buy a room. I was very cheap when I was like a backpacker uh, in my college days. But there was this shipwreck. Um, there were like about a thousand people on board. And of the thousand people on board, like 852 of them died. And what was striking about it is, yeah, we have this stereotype that comes from the Titanic that like you say women and children first and it's the men who are the most likely to die. But when you really looked at the numbers of the Estonia, the main group of people who survived were the men. Like 22% of the men on that ship survived and they're all younger than 44. Only 5% of the women survived. Five. 22 to 5%, no older women survived, no kids survived. None of the people that you think heroes would save survived. So when the facts really happen, the people of Sweden are looking at this and being like, oh, wow, we're not necessarily living up to the heroic ideals. And there's been like fascinating studies in this. Like, did you know overall that actually in shipwrecks, men are most likely to survive? Like they just are like oh, wow. the t- Titanic is actually the outlier. Like Titanic really doesn't happen that much. Like usually twice as many men survive in a shipwreck than women. Usually more crew members survive in a shipwreck than women. Kids are the most likely to die. And also captains are very likely to live. Captains almost never go down with the ship. So like all of these myths that we have about what right. you do in a disaster are actually not true. And like but some that of this- is basically driving home the point of this masculinity, like men stay behind, captains go down with the ship. And even though 
there of course are female captains. I think that the stereotypical, like this idea of like the old, mm. the, the, the old way of doing yes, the pipe yes. And the, yeah. the Gorton's fishermen out there going down. You know, even on shows like Deadliest Catch, like it goes down, they go down. Well, yeah, and this is going back to what you kind of said about like being a man and having to live up to these stereotypes. Like he's he's forced to aspire to a fictional gray beard, pipe chewing captain, male hero passenger that doesn't actually exist in reality as provable by the numbers. Like it's a myth for everybody, but he's being judged against a myth, which is, which is really crazy, which is like, I don't, I don't know how anybody lives up to that. And truthfully, the scientists who studied these shipwrecks and like studied the passengers, they're like, you know, the thing is you could say that men act badly, but the truth is you can't really say how women act because women could have acted just as badly, but they didn't succeed because the men were stronger. And so, like, maybe women are that selfish, but we they just couldn't fight back on the boat. You can't really test it. So it also makes men look more selfish, but you don't really know. Like, but nobody also, knows. history is told through the eyes of the people. Like, this is what this whole movie is about. Like, this, the idea of, like, even his version of the events start to whitewash it, right? Like, well, it wasn't that bad. It was just a this. I didn't run away. And you can tell that, well, whatever story that has happened, you know, from a shipwreck or, you know, from a disaster, it's told by the survivors and the survivors ultimately are going to, whether or not it's, tr- it's Rashomon, right? It's like, well, this is the way I interpreted it. This is the way I saw it. This is the way I felt. This is the way I saw myself in this moment. And it is, um, I think it is very like uh, egocentric because you're only looking at yourself and, and you know what you are thinking and doing and, and you are creating a narrative, right? People want to like lean in and hear it. And I think, you know, it's, it, I just, we were talking about Jackass and not to keep on bringing it back to Jackass, but you remember this thing that they did on Jackass where they kidnapped Brad Pitt. It was on the show. Mm-hmm. So Brad Pitt kind of aligned himself with the Jackass guys and he was online to go see a movie or something. And he's surrounded by a giant group of people. This van pulls up the jackass guys have masks on, you know, like black masks, and they jump out of a van, van, they grab him and they throw him in the back and then they just peel out. And no one did anything. Like everyone's like, wait, wait, what what just <laughs> what just happened? Right? Like and then you go from like, oh my gosh, this is Brad Pitt. I'm so excited. Oh, cool, Brad Pitt's here. And then he is literally picked up, thrown in a van, <laughs> and no one knows what to do. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been talking about like, and I know it's fictional, but uh, Carrie on the new Sex in the City reboot, where uh, Big dies on the Peloton uh, in the first episode, and thankfully so because uh, those uh, those stories came out right after that. Um, and uh, and as he died, she kind of is like stuck in this moment. People are like she should have called nine one one. She should have called nine one one. But I do think that there is this moment of what is going on? Like you, we are we're used to the Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, Rock version of events where it's like, I'm going into action. Like, you know, before the fist is even thrown, I'm going to catch it in my hand, you know, and, you know, it takes a second for us to even comprehend something so dramatic and tragic. You know, we're, that's not the life that we live in. And maybe a person in a different area, a different war-torn country, a, a person that lives in different circumstances. I think most of us are are soft. I'm going to say a lot of us probably are more soft than not. If you're listening to a podcast, probably a little soft. Uh, oh, but I'm you're very soft. It's sad. <laughs> but I think that, like, yeah, we're not used to that kind of that kind of energy, and you know, to expect more. But it's like this idea of: Are you less 
because you didn't do more. Right. Yeah. Like, are you are you not a good person because you're not a hero? Exactly. Like the actor who played Thomas, he in his past, like he's played Humbert Humbert, you know, mm -hmm. the like the like predatory pedophile rapist of Lolita. And he said when it comes to people coming up to him afterwards, people hate Tomas more than they hate Humbert Humbert. Like Tomas is like his most loathed character that he has ever played. And he has literally played one of the worst characters who has ever existed in like literature and fiction. Well, and he's like, it's fascinating. He's like, I find it really sick. But it's like the thing is that cowardice provokes people because they are confronted. This is him. He says, like, perhaps it's because they are confronted with their own cowardice and nobody yes. sees themselves as a coward. Well, that, that idea, like, I think there's an idea that whatever you hate in somebody else probably is triggering an element of you, right? Like, you know, yeah. on, on the like the small details, I'm not talking about like, if you're, you know, you have a dislike for like Hitler, you know, I'm just saying, but like the idea, like, but there are these little moments, I think that you look and this film, it shows it, it shows everybody wrestling with it, whether it's the friends and then how that affects the couple, how it affects the actual couple that it happens to, like so much so that like this first motion, like talk to me about what you think happens in that scene when the wife goes to visit her friend, like the friend is having affairs, openly having affairs. Her husband's in the know. She's okay with her husband has an affair. And when, when the wife goes to, to see her friend, she's like, well, what, like, like, what do you think she's trying to do there? She's asking about this. Like, she's, is she judging her friend? Is she, like, saying, like, maybe I'm in a bad marriage? Like, what do you think is happening in that scene? What she's trying to get out of that Oh, scene? I'm glad we're talking about it, because I do think it's really important. So, you know, the wife goes to see this, like, lady who's already told us, like, I don't bring my kids on vacation. They just weigh me down. Like, night one, we see her on a date with this, like, American guy that she seems to have decided is too religious for her. So then she's with this Italian stud. And the wife sits down and she's like, what are you doing? And the wife's questions, I think, are so revealing about her, about her own fear. Like, she says to her, to, like, her friend who's in open relationship, she's like, aren't you afraid of being left, you know? And yeah. the woman is like, you can't build your whole idea of self on being a wife and mother. You know, you have to think about right. yourself too. But like you see in this, I feel like the pressure of this wife, of Ebba, to look like the perfect wife, to be the perfect family. I mean, when you see the family like napping together, they're all in like matching pajamas, matching right. long underwear. And you kind of know like Ebba probably bought them all these matching pajamas because she wants to be... It's like they're an Instagram family before Instagram was even super, super, super big. Right. You know, she's like... like mild influencer in her own life just for her own kind of status. But it feels very like image conscious. And so, you know, like Ebba, I think, has given up a lot to be a wife, I feel, you know, and I feel like she doesn't understand not giving up so much because like there's that scene where she and Tomas are first talking in the hallway and like she's like, we need to agree on this. We agree on everything. And there's something in the way that she's like nervously smiling the whole time, like smiling when she's like, yeah, it was an avalanche. It was pretty weird. Her big smile is so kind of forced that I start to think like Ebba has spent her whole relationship with this guy, like playing along with his version of reality to keep their family together because her whole identity is being a wife and mother. Well, you see, I think that she's choosing that. Like, oh, I don't yeah. think that he's oh, no, totally. like, yeah. like, I don't think that he's putting that on her, but then he is forced to play into what she wants when 
this moment happens. It's like, you're oh, right. right. You're, you're right. You know I what agree. I'm saying? She's, yeah. not a, she's not a victim. She's a, that scene's about her being a willing participant, right? Yeah. And I think that that's what makes this whole movie really interesting because it goes so much so that there's a scene towards the end where they go skiing and it's very, very foggy. And the husband's like, you know, follow me if I stop uh, you stop because I might be seeing something you don't see and I want to make sure that everyone's safe. And there's this moment where the wife gets lost and the husband then goes and saves her. And I wanted to talk about this moment because I think both of our readings of her would have us believe the same thing about what's happening in that moment. What do you think is happening in that moment? I think that she has decided to save the family by going back into gender stereotypes and letting him be the hero in front of her kids to make herself be the saved one in front of the kids again. There's a way of looking at it like, oh, she's doing the right thing. But I don't know if the movie thinks she's doing the right thing. I think she's just doing the thing that she knows how to do, which is like, well, if this is the way we all think families are supposed to be oriented, he saves me. I'm a victim. I have to make this happen. It's like, it's like, Calculated and smart, but also really depressing. That's what I think is going on. I totally agree. I think that instead of like really accepting him, what she does is she tries to create him into this image of what she wants. So yes, it's doing everything you just said, but in a weird way, she's not acknowledging the argument because she is putting him back up on a pedestal in which he can only fall. You're right. And also at the same time, she's letting him know that she's done it too. You're right. Mm -hmm. Because like he carries her down. He's feeling good. They have that moment. He's like, we made it. You know, and it's supposed to be that big cathartic line. Like our family has survived. And then the scene doesn't cut. Right. You hear her be like, okay, time to go. Like, she's totally fine. And it's that little bit that I think is so fascinating because it's like her kind of saying, I didn't actually need this. I need everybody to also quietly know I didn't need this, but I also gave it to you. Like, it's like so, it's so back and forth. It's like she can't even commit to her own savior plan. And I, I love that. Like, this is Ruben talking about, like, keeping that last final beat to make sure that, like, it didn't land on that moment of easy triumph. What I really liked about the scene was, like, you know, when they say, we made it, we made it. And then you can cut. But I wanted to stay in the scene, like, 12 seconds longer. So after you have said, we made it, okay, now we have to go and get our skis. And then you have to, okay. <laughs> so everyday life has to continue. And I think that is so painful and so beautiful. You know, by the way, thinking about the way that he directs and talking about, like, his attitude, I, I found it really interesting to know that, you know, for the most part, they would just shoot, like, one scene a day and just repeat it over and over and over again. Um, he said he treated it like a football game where it would be like, okay, we only have five takes left. Everybody ready? Let's do it. Let's do it the best we can possibly do it. And and I think part of that process was there's obviously a lot of improv in here. And I think the improv helped him write the script, but you really can be in your character. I think that these actors can really be in their character, right? They don't feel that they 
they have to have a punchy end or something like that. And I wonder if, and without seeing Downfall, maybe that is the reason why Downfall doesn't work. Or probably more to the point that this is a tough sell for an American film. I think it is. It's like a very, it's a very internal journey. Even though the the like the action of the avalanche is giant, but it's also incredibly small. Like it's like this is not an action movie. This is a this is a dialogue movie about what's going on behind the eyes. No, you're right. I mean, yeah, like first, like he is a major retaker. Like I think he does every scene like 30 or 40 times. Yeah, he says one camera position yeah. a day pretty much. Yeah. 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 I mean, and luckily he doesn't move the camera that much. So one camera position a day will still get you through the whole yeah. film, like in a normal pace. But like you know, that that four character thing with the two couples at the dinner and the video, like he spent so long on that scene that he basically did like one day only focusing on one actor in that in the scene at a time. So every day it would be all about just one actor, like studying their reaction shots and like seeing how they're feeling. And that is why that scene I feel like is so agonizing. Cause you get to see like, you know, Redbeard making excuses for his friend and like mm-hmm. in ways that make the wife feel even worse. Like it's all so well thought out. But it's interesting because I kind of respect the husband more in that moment. Cause the husband doesn't even go along with it. Right. Redbeard is is kind of saying, well, this and that and this is why you did it and that's why you did it and all this sort of stuff. And it and he's not. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's no. He just he's just quiet. He, yeah. He's just like that whole day of walking, watching him was just him sitting in a chair looking like he wants to die. It's terrible. And like what I think this movie does so well that the uh, that downfall didn't. And I actually thought downfall was fine. Like if, if force measure didn't exist and you only ever saw downfall, you'd be like pretty good movie. Actually, a, right. you know, a pretty smart movie. But like the way that he keeps his camera so still, I think it gives you the creeps watching it. Like it feels like you're watching something you shouldn't, right? Because you're yeah. not like the camera's taking me here and the camera's moving me here and the camera's cutting over this way. It's like, oh no, you're in the room with these people. And I feel like a voyeur, like it starts to kind of creep into you that you're just staring at them because like the camera's not distracting you in any kind of a way. And Downfall doesn't do that. Like it just, it cuts around a lot and then it can't quite commit to keeping all the drama internal. So like there's a bit where the the couple in it is of course like Julia Louise Dreyfus and Will Ferrell where she's like considering flirting with like another guy or like having an affair. They take it way too big. Like that to me is why this movie is kind of perfect. Like when they do that, that one little moment where the two guys go out and ski, like she goes out and skis by herself, but then that moment where the two friends go out and ski, like there is this interesting thing about, again, about machismo and like, and being a man and like, oh, there's my friend thinks you're attractive and he feels good about himself. Like the first time he kind of feels good about himself is like, oh, actually, no, not you. That actually wasn't. Uh, That scene is so brutal. Can we listen to it? Because it's the most brutal thing. The more the girls apologize for saying like, we didn't mean that you were the handsome guy. We meant it with somebody else. The more he dies. And it's awful because like in that, in that like little 20 second window where she says that he's handsome, he actually suddenly somehow gets more handsome on camera. Like he's a good looking guy, but he suddenly gets extra handsome. He just sort of glows up while doing nothing. <laughs> and then they take it all the way. And the, the patheticness of the apologies, like they make him feel smaller and smaller. I had to come back again. Uh-huh. You made a mistake. She, she didn't mean you. When you she meant someone else, my friend. She didn't mean you. I'm sorry. It was my fault. Okay, no. Fine, thank you. Have a good time. Listen, it was my fault. I'm really sorry for this. I was actually pointing at someone else. So uh, so let's go and take it easy. But but 
actually think this is a really good moment to even just talk about the casting of a guy like Johannes versus a guy like Will Ferrell. Because the thing is, Will Ferrell shows up on screen and you know he's going to be kind of a doofus. Like, you just know it. It's Will Ferrell. He's a doofus. Like, he plays doofuses. Doofuses that we might love, but they're always kind of dubbed some way. You expect a Will Ferrell character to screw up. That's what that's who he is on screen. Mm. Whereas this guy, Tomas, he looks like a normal hero. He doesn't look like a comedian, you know? He looks like a guy who could kind of step into the role and like save the day. And I think that makes it even worse. I mean, like, it's like a poker game. Not showing your hand that Tomas is a doofus makes it worse, right? Whereas if you're like, it's right. Will Ferrell, you expect Will Ferrell to kind of screw up. Even though that he at least, he played, I'm not saying he's bad in the film. He plays the agony of knowing he screwed up, I think, quite well. But you know what you're getting into with that character in the role. Well, you know, I kind of disagree with it because I think one of the things that Will Ferrell is really amazing at is playing like, yes, there's Anchorman and there are all these like great comedy characters, but he can be very grounded. And I think he's done amazing like work like that and, and putting him with Julia Louise Dreyfus. I think there's a, something really interesting there and 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 the twist of the character not wanting to admit it but being like a, a lovable guy like i thought there's something really i mean again i haven't seen it so but i'm just saying i like that casting of the two of them together i think that it feels like the movie doesn't really t- tackle what this movie tackles and again it's hard to like i'm arguing about the casting of a movie that i haven't seen oh, no, that's fair. not even based on a, on a thing but i think that this movie is about like these very small details about like it should be every man. It shouldn't be like, you don't have to be sexy. You don't have to be cool. You don't have to be um, anything. Because I think that the root of the problem is you you ran away from your family, right? You ran away from, you don't have to be anything more. It's not like, oh, you didn't fight off the robbers. You didn't do anything like that. It's like you, you ran away and that shame of that. And I don't know if that movie allows that to happen because I think that's something that actually Will Ferrell can actually do really, really well. Well, I think he does it so well that he brings it to the movie with him. Like you expect to right. see shame on Will Ferrell. Like okay. even when he's grounded, I think he plays characters who get kicked around a bit by life. Yeah. And maybe they think they're better than they are, but they do get kicked around a lot. Like he doesn't get to come into movies and always be awesome. Right? Yeah. And so I think he he, he carries like this odor of shame in his movies. And I think he plays it really well. And I think there's a great place for that. It's just different than how this character is to me. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, you don't see Will Ferrell in a movie playing a part that The Rock would play, right? Like he doesn't step into those kind of hero roles. And so like, he's kind of naturally questioning it when he shows up in a movie because he is like an off kilter kind of like person who maybe rises to the day, but he's not The Rock. And I mean, maybe, and I think that kind of does the work for you that Ruben wants to be doing. Like, like, I mean, Ruben's whole point with this film is like he wanted to say, and this is his quote, like, why are we reproducing this male hero character so much? You know, I think it's because we want men to be loyal to the country, loyal to their football team. And I think it would be impossible to make men go to war if we didn't have this reproduction of the male hero. He says, the culture that we have is creating society and the culture that we have today is creating a new kind of society. We have to look at the power and the potential of moving images in a new way. He's kind of saying like all of these movies we have about heroism on screen can kind of serve as like mind control for men. I mean, like, I do think that like maybe we wouldn't have had so many people sign up for 9-11 if we hadn't had Saving Private Ryan come out a couple years before and people being like, maybe it's noble to go to war and fight and die and blah, 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 blah. Like, 
I think that movies that promote war and heroism in that way have been really dangerous for their country. And I, I, I like that what Ruben does is he wants to make movies that don't tell the audience that that's what he's saying necessarily. Right. He wants to like put this image out there and make the audience say like, what am I expecting this man to be a hero? Why am I expecting this man to be a hero? Yeah. Like, what does it mean to me that I really want him to be a hero, even though he's not? Why can't I forgive this man for not being a hero? And I appreciate that because I think like, I get tired of movies that, you know, say like sexism is bad. You know, like I want a movie to like question all of these thoughts of why we have this and let us tear it apart. Like I don't need to be told a thing I already believe. I want to wrestle with the thing that I feel like is wrong and figure out why do I still play into it and how can I train myself away from it? You know, we should give people a taste of this who haven't seen it yet either. Okay, so this is the trailer to Downhill. I feel like I keep saying downfall, but it is downhill. It looked like it was going to kill us. For a and moment. the kids were screaming because it felt like we were going to die. Pete? Wow. And I look over at Pete, and he had grabbed his phone. Pete left us. Life's I didn't leave you to be buried. I'm going to win. I ran to get help. Yes, I'm going to win. That's not what happened. And I choose to survive. I love my family. Every day is all we have. How could I run away in ski boots? What? Can you run in ski boots? Not very well. Boom. Exactly. Regardless, I wouldn't leave my family to die. That's boom. Yes. And so, like, here is the thing that I think Ruben is doing that is so interesting. He took his inspiration for this movie, you know, not just from subverting heroic images. He took it from real life. Like I said in our intro that he's a guy who's really influenced by YouTube, but he really is. Like he is a guy who believes that YouTube is where truth happens and he watches YouTube videos for inspiration. You know, like he got the inspiration to make like force majeure to set it at, you know, an avalanche because he was literally just watching clips of controlled avalanches on YouTube. The score, that really manic score, that is from a video that he found on YouTube called Kid Shreds on Accordion. And then he has that big scene in this movie where, like, Tomas finally recognizes the mistakes that he's made wrestling with his own self-image. He has that, I think, really painful kind of speech where he's like, I don't like who I am either. I hate this person that I am. Like, I can't forgive the person that I am. He says he's like, he's lied. He cheats at games with his kids. He's been unfaithful. So that lets you even know that you're right. Like, Ebba has been putting up with so much from this guy and smiling to keep this family together. He says he's pathetic. He bursts into tears and his tears are so terrible. And to find the tears for this scene... Ruben went and Googled worst man cry ever. Worst man cry ever. Although I think what turned up was like a video called best man cry ever. So that's what you should Google if you okay. find it. But like, here it is. Best cry ever. This is from, this has 90 million views on YouTube. Because I know somewhere deep down in my heart, I still love you. 
by the way if you've seen it which i think probably 90 million people have you know it's um it's actually like a cry from the tv show intervention there's a boxer named rocky lockridge who i actually just thought of recently because he's in a documentary that was at sundance briefly um but it's him you know his struggles about getting sober he actually didn't survive he died a few years ago but this moment of like vulnerability became like this huge youtube meme joke in like 2010 and if you look around youtube you just see people like taking this legit cry and like remixing it into songs All of that backstory is so important because what that is showing even is how uncomfortable we as a culture are with men crying, that we have to make it a joke, that like this poor man showing legitimate emotion becomes the source of mockery. And so then in this movie, you have Tomas doing a very similar cry right here. And what happens is his wife is like, I hate this. Please don't show me your real emotions. I mean, it isn't that awful because then you're sort of like, well, what does she want? She wants him to be truthful about what happened, but then he gets so truthful that she hates it. And she's like, stop it. Stop it. Don't be this person either. I mean, that's brutal. Like he can't find a, he can't find emotional safety anywhere. It's a very interesting thing to see a character without sympathy for her husband, the the husband and the father of her children, like she doesn't know what she wants. And I think that that's that moment that you see her wrestling with who she is. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know what she wants from her relationships. And I think that because she's holding herself up on this pedestal too, like I'm doing everything right. I'm going to create this fake ending. I'm, I don't want him to cry. I want him to be this. It makes the ending actually the best moment of the film. And I would say it creates the kind of the most masculine moment for our main character at the end, because like the, the playing field is now leveled. And to talk it out, like at the end of the movie, after he has rescued her and it's, you know, this kind of fake rescue, they are leaving, they're going home, they're on this bus and based on a YouTube video, right? There is like idiot bus driver. I believe it's called like idiot bus driver almost kills a bunch of tourists. Like, uh, yeah, he... here it is. If you want to hear it, it sounds exactly like the movie. It sounds almost word for word. <laughs> Can we get off? Can we get off? Can we get off? Can we get off? I want to get off. Can we get off? 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 Can we get
they recreate this moment and she is freaking out. And you see her genuinely freaking out that this bus is going to go over the edge. The husband's a little bit more in control. and But the husband was in control for the the avalanche too until it actually hit. But then she runs up to the front of the bus and she's like, get me off this bus. Get me out of here. She freaks out. And then she leaves her family on the bus. So much so that the bus becomes this crazy moment where everyone's trying to get off the bus. Whether or not this bus was actually in danger of going off the cliff, it doesn't look like it was, but it looked like she created this moment of panic. She got off. She did not think about her kids. She did not think about anybody. And at that point, you don't really, the movie doesn't really end on her, right? It ends really on him. And a guy offers him a cigarette and says, you know, would you, uh, do you want to smoke? He's like, no, no, no. And he's like, actually, yeah, yeah, give me a cigarette. And the, and his son's like, dad, you smoke? And he's like, yeah, I do. And <laughs> and I love that moment because, like, in many respects, the dad is able to fully be who he is. Like, I think now if, if you ask the dad, like, did you run? He would say, yes, I did. Like, there's a, there's a confidence to him. And it's interesting because I feel like she's the character that probably needs the most growth in a way. I don't know if you register the shame or the guilt of her getting off the bus. Yeah, you know, nobody uh, expects... Yeah, there's no... She doesn't get, like, punished necessarily for it. They're more just like, oh, now we all have to walk, but not like you yeah. left us. And so then it's like, she's a hypocrite. And do we in the audience even, like, care? Does anybody care? Like, we've spent this whole movie being mad at this guy. And now well, how do and we Well, and I feel? guess the question is, does she see herself as her husband in that moment? And I don't know. I mean, the movie doesn't like the movie doesn't tell you only because it doesn't exist. Like in a movie that exists on a lot of people's faces and reactions, we don't really get to see hers. Like in that moment, she's from behind, you know, like she's kind of obscured by him. And and she like she basically gives her child to Redbeard uh, to hold because her child is, you know, too heavy. And I wonder if that's like, if that means anything too, like the burden yeah. of this, you know, but I mean, and at the Red same Beard time. And gets his own like moment of screaming, like women and children first, like literally yeah. saying the heroic line that doesn't exist in reality. So he kind of gets to make up a little bit with his girlfriend. Yeah. And it's performative. It, like yeah. he's making that choice because he had that argument with her. Uh, our, our, you know, the male lead, he is getting a moment to stay with his children and and I think in a way, be comfortable with who he is. Like at the end of the day, you know, like the wife had a total freak out. And I think in a moment of panic, we all make rash decisions. And I think you can say that for moments of grief. I think you can say that for moments of uh, happiness, right? Like there, there are just, when we are overcome emotionally, we are not the best versions of ourselves, or we are maybe the more selfish versions of ourselves. And that is part of who we are as human beings. And that, and we have to accept that no one's going to be perfect, but you know, we have to free them from that, that, that prism of like, of having to do everything right. Cause we assume that it's, it's a lot more calculated than it actually is. I don't think that she went off and was like, Oh my God, now I'm leaving my, I don't think that she would see herself the same way that she sees her husband only because she was in the moment, the way the husband wouldn't see the moment. I think he feels shame about what he did, but I think this movie is also about him not even being able to share that. And one of the things I, that June and I, I've had moments with June, especially since we've had kids where we would be, in bed and you know whatever it was a kid wasn't sleeping it was like just a horrible moment and we'd just be like 
the fuck like and to have that ability to kind of just laugh at like we are overwhelmed we are angry we're not the best version of ourselves like is a really freeing moment like you can share that with somebody right like and i think a lot of people live in marriages uh where they can't they can't share the darkest thought you know i can't let them see me sweat you know and i think that that's you know an interesting part of this movie is it's like does your partner really know you I mean, this happens to people, like, especially now, like we're getting more and more disasters, especially weather disasters every year. And the research on what happens to marriages in disasters is fascinating. Like in Japan right now, they're talking about this whole kind of phenomenon that they're calling like genpatsu rikon. It means atomic divorce. It's like couples who can't agree how to raise their family after they had the nuclear explosion a decade ago. They're mm-hmm. like, the wives are more nervous about radiation. The men aren't really caring. And because they can't see eye to eye on the threat that they're now living in, these couples are getting divorced. It's becoming like a social phenomenon. I feel like we're even seeing shades of that in COVID. You know, like people well, breaking up because they so can't agree on- So many people broke on, up over COVID. Exactly. And there's so much research on this that I went down a crazy rabbit hole in because like once I saw the statistic that women and children are 14 times more likely to die in a disaster than men are for so many reasons, not even not even just like men holding women back, but like just socially inflicted things that make it harder to be a woman, that like women in certain countries are less likely to have learned how to swim, that women don't have as much iron in their bloodstream because of what they eat, but that women like... You know, if it's a tsunami, women are less likely to be like, I'm just going to rip off my clothes and swim because there's so much kind of shame connected to the female body. All of these reasons make it that like women are more likely to die in disasters than men are. But what's interesting is like when man-made disasters happen, like 9-11, when 9-11 happened, the divorce rate went down. Like in New York, the divorce rate dropped by 32% after 9-11 because couples were like, oh my God, the world is scary. We have to stay together. But when natural disasters happen, when a hurricane happens, the whole next year, divorces go up. They've been studying all the hurricanes in the Gulf here. And it's like in the year after a hurricane, you see births go up because people are like, oh my God, life, we need to live. We need to make life. You see marriages go up because people are like, I really do love you. I have to do something. But also divorces go up and this effect lasts for like a year. So there is something about huge disasters that make you reevaluate your whole life and sometimes negatively, which I think makes it such an interesting irony that everything we're seeing in this film happens because of something that's never even really a disaster. Like it's not really an avalanche. The bus goes down the hill fine. It's people being nervous about perceived threats that don't even really hit them. But and- I'm going to I'm going to even go like this. I think that you can I, I, I like this research. I don't think that disasters have anything to do with it. I think that we see people in a moment and like COVID is a perfect example of it. Yes. People are dying. It was a, uh, you know, a tragedy for, I think so many people have people in their families and lives. They know that got sick or died. But what I think the reason why divorces are happening in this time is because you're actually having to spend all your time with this person and your preconceived notion of who they are versus the version that you see in the morning and at night, not the version that you see 24 seven, you know, seven days a week changes. And, and you might be in love with that person that you hang out with a little bit more on the weekends, but you only see maybe during the week, like 10 or 15 hours, you know, or, or something like that, you know, some, and 
it's you get to see all of them. You get to be in there. You can't hide. It's like it's like why when you move in with somebody, can you survive that? Like I always say, like you have to move in with somebody before you get married to them or whatever. And that's a fucking old school idea now because I think that's of course you'd do that. But but like the idea, like you got to understand who these people are because the the you can't you can't keep the bullshit up like you have to reveal yourself at a certain point i think and and so yes to your point these disasters are definitely moments where you see it but i think any moment that ultimately reveals you or you see you in a moment of weakness uh it could be it could be the death of a relative right it could be the sickness of a relative oh my gosh i saw the way that you reacted to my grief i saw the way that you reacted to just showing up like you reveal like these parts that you that often aren't examined it's you know That is true. But I do think it's interesting when like gender gets into it because I mean, this seems like a really silly story to feel silly even talking about it. But do you remember that stage in COVID where we didn't even know if we could walk outside without masks? Yeah. I was thinking about that today. I was like, I was like, I was thinking about that today. I was like, I was like, I used to have to walk my dog uh, in a mask and it was such a pain. Yeah. It was like, yeah. Yeah. I remember like I would take walks with my boyfriend and he would not always wear a mask inside, you know, especially like if we were walking kind of in the middle of the road and not on the sidewalk, Mm -hmm. he would not wear a mask, like necessarily taking like a stroll if we were going to go play basketball during like the worst parts of the pandemic. And I would feel so embarrassed and I would look around and I would see other women who were wearing masks while their boyfriend weren't wearing masks. It felt like kind of a thing. Like you would see a woman outside wearing a mask and her partner was not wearing a mask. Well, this And I built it into this giant sociological thing of all of us women being like, I feel a little embarrassed by my partner. I wish he was wearing a mask. I feel like it makes me look bad. We're that couple where the woman's wearing a mask and the man's not wearing a mask. But now a year later where I know that it doesn't matter whether or not you're wearing a mask outside, if you're like spaced from people, I feel like Ebba having a fit on the bus, like freaking out probably for no reason. And why did I even spend all this angst like worrying about it? But it's so funny because uh, Raven, who uh, is on works on the show here, said that she used to work in a haunted house, and you wouldn't believe how many men would hide behind their girlfriends or run away from them <laughs> in a haunted house. Like, and again, these are these moments that I think just open up a little glimpse, right? It just opens. It just it, it's the crack, and and I think that a lot of us have a tendency to ignore the crack and just you know go forward. And if you keep on picking at it, I think you will find. Again, I don't think there's anything perfect. I don't think that there is like a perfect person and it's like, oh, you shouldn't be with that person. But I'm saying, but I think if you pick at these cracks, you will kind of wreck a relationship. And I think that that's what this movie does show too, that this relationship is ultimately fine, right? Like what is a perfect relationship? Like what is a, like, is that even exist? I read an article with Will Arnett this week where he was saying that like, so many people were upset that him and Amy got divorced. Amy Poehler got divorced. But he's like, people don't know who we are. Like that, like you're, you're putting so much on it. Oh, you're the perfect couple. You're this. He's like, it's like, it, like, what is the perfect? I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect couple. I think there's, uh, I think there's a person that you love and that you, that is your best friend that you spend time with, but, but you have all the ups and downs. But I think, like, I think that's this idea, like, I think if you, you're you're never going to find it, you're never going to find this perfect thing. And I think that these moments are speak more to people who are not comfortable being settled in a certain way. There is something in the lens of seeing this movie again 
after the last few years where you can, you see that it's about that. It's also a movie that's like about trying to stick up for facts. Like how do you, how can we all agree on the truth of what happened? You know, it's about like, I think social fear, staying quiet. Who are you backing up? Can footage ever prove what really happened? The idea that like, this is a movie about people who can't agree on facts are trying to agree on facts and are unable to felt so relevant to me. But I also caught myself thinking so much about this character that I want to ask you about, like the janitor. Because one thing Ruben keeps doing is he keeps cutting away from this film just to look at a janitor and the janitor is just watching them and the janitor doesn't really speak and the janitor is just staring at them and the janitor is just looking on with like disdain. And he kind of feels like this external character, like look at these people crying in the hallway for reasons I don't even understand and probably thinking to me, like, look at these dumb rich people. Because I think there that is like a deliberate element in this film. Because there's something with this consciousness behind Ruben Island where he's like, you know, if you look at this film, and you want to criticize it as being a film about like white rich people's problems. He would be like, yes, it is. That is, that is exactly what it is too. And right. that is also why I cast these people. And that is why I have this janitor looking at them. And if you think that this whole fight, if this whole essence of this movie is also kind of maybe stupid and unnecessary, then yes. I want you to have that debate in your own head too. You know, I want you to be wrestling with why did I even make it about these people in the first place? And why am I showing you the working class person in the hotel staring at these rich people in a hotel that has like waterfall urinals that look so luxurious? I haven't been in many urinal bathrooms, but like, I don't think that's common. This rich, rich setting and this one guy looking on, not really saying a word and being like, oh, okay, sure. Well, but I think it's like, I don't want to show anyone this side of me. Like they can't like, like I've been in that moment, like as a couple where you are trapped in, like you want to have a fight, but you can't, you have no place to have a fight. Like it's (laughs) like, you have to like kind of find a place to like have a fight. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's a tricky situation, you know? And it's like, and then all of a sudden this person's seeing you and then you feel even more guilty. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a tricky I think it's like you feel revealed. You don't want like it's a reason why you don't want to have anybody see you fight like in a in a in a restaurant or anything like that. You just don't want people to see your business. Like, no, I want to keep up this appearance. But it's all about appearances. It is all about appearances. And that's why I think it's funny that when Force Majeure did not get the Oscar nomination that many people thought it should. Like Ruben released a video of his own reaction as like the Oscar nominations are getting announced as he's watching himself on camera not get nominated. And he decided to do his own version of, like, the worst man cry ever. (laughs) What he says in Swedish um, is, is like, his friend is there and his friend is saying, don't rip off your clothes, Ruben. Don't rip off your clothes. Like, he's just going all the way out of it. I I love his love of YouTube. I, I don't know why I find it so just absolutely endearing. You have like a a filmmaker that I think of as like incredibly high class, love the world of YouTube and the art that is on it in a way that isn't just like, I'm showing a montage of dancing people. That is like, I have studied the psychological effects of how people think of things on YouTube and I will use them to make a larger comment on society. Good for you, Ruben. Good for you. Well, Amy, I can't imagine that there's many people who don't like this movie because I think this movie, first of all, it's a foreign film, so it's not being judged by our American critics. I, I think that this is a movie that probably works really well because it comes over here and I think makes a big splash. 
It does. There was really only one very big name critic who did not like this film. And it is my favorite rebel of film criticism, Richard Brody of The New Yorker. And this oh, is really? what he wrote. The writer and director Ruben Oslin presents the members of the nuclear family as stereotypes. He finds the glimmers of psychological depth only in supporting characters, including a sexually uninhibited woman who Ebba meets at the resort and a divorced man who's traveling with his 20-year-old girlfriend. Little but the children's fear of their parents' separation has any dramatic weight. Oslin's crisp, repressed direction is itself a stereotype, and his teasing script and convenient resolutions offer only superficial ironies. A particularly haunting ending offers more mystery and curiosity in a single shot than does the entire story that precedes it. And I think that review is interesting because it's kind of like he's acknowledging to me what makes the movie good. You know, the mystery, the hauntingness of what's happening, that like the resolution is sort of convenient and it is kind of superficial. That's all what I, I like about it. But he does bring up an interesting point, which we haven't talked about. The children. There's so much of the children in this film, and yet they don't really get to say or do much. What did you make of the children in this movie? Because we haven't really talked about them. I think the children are really re- perceptive, and they they see something is wrong, you know. And I feel like at a moment in the film, uh, you see the dad only having solace with the child, who's not judging him, and when the father really does cry the kids are there for him, right? Like, so there is this like beautiful, this beautiful thing about the pure acceptance of who you are is in the face of these children. And I think also the disappointment, the shame is from these children too. Like they're going, they're going through something, but no one's helping them articulate it, right? Because the mom can't even get there and the dad won't get there. So the only people who are not discussing it are the kids. So I think when the kids come and rush to the dad at the end and and hug him as he's crying, like that's their catharsis. That's their moment, you know? Um, You're right. And you're right. I like how the kids never show up as movie kids. They're not like quippy, like, well, dad, we'd be eating pizza if you hadn't left us or something no, yeah, dumb like no, that. They yeah. never bring it up, but you know they know because they won't look or talk to to both of the parents. They're mad at both of them at the beginning. And like, yeah. and yeah, they say so much through their silence. I think the film says so much like by watching them because the parents are even just going into the hallway the whole time so that the kids don't see them fight. But the kids know what's happening. And like, we know that the kids know what's happening. And I love talking about that hug scene that you mentioned because- What stands out for me in there is that the older daughter is yelling at her mother to come and join this hug because it's like she knows more than everybody what's happening. She's like, you have to join this hug. This is our moment of reconciliation. And she's like bullying about it. And and for good reason. (laughs) Mama! So yeah, good movie kids. Good movie kids. Usually I think kids in movies are too phony. Excellent movie kids. Uh, Really excellent movie kids. And I also think it, it, it speaks a lot to how kids can get the short end of the stick, you know? Like this is a very traumatic moment and no one is really dealing with the kids. Uh, but overall, great film. Makes me want to watch Downhill uh, just to see how they did it. Um, I've been doing a lot of these rewatches of like back-to-back movies and stuff. So I'm, I may I may actually... May actually jump in. You uh, should. That or I want to hear that, what you think. Or watch Coda, which everyone says is a, a must-watch. 
it's good. I think I, I, I like that the guy got nominated the dead. He's very funny. Now, on top of all of this, Amy, next week we are talking about uh, a movie, our last movie in the cold, right? Uh, and talking about remakes and, and, and sequels and prequels. Uh, we're talking about The Shining. And so many people said, well, you got to do Dr. Sleep if you're going to do The Shining. Have you seen both films? I have. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen Dr. Sleep. And Dr. Sleep, are you this high on Dr. Sleep? A lot of people really love Dr. Sleep. I am not that in love with Dr. Sleep, but I do enjoy Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. That's a very funny character. Well, I'm excited to uh, watch yet another Kubrick film with you. Uh, I think this is like probably the most viewed director that we've had on the show. I think so. Him or Spielberg, man, it's close. Him or Spielie Spielberg. Yeah. I don't suppose they... uh told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? I heard a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family. Well... Can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not gonna happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom, they really wanna go and live in that hotel for the winter. Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. Dude, I, I killed you with Manny. You did this to me, didn't you? I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Here's Johnny. All right. Well, stay tuned to see what happens after our cold series ends as we have a interesting way to get into the Oscars. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group. That is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Unspooled.